So um, I didn't plan to be in a pandemic in 2020. My guess is neither did you. Um, certainly, it's been uh, a time of learning. There are things I would not have expected if I could have tried to anticipate what would happen in situations like these. And one of them is I did not expect that during the midst of a pandemic, we would get so much spam. Um, I found out fairly early on that Kia is standing with me in the coronavirus, which I appreciate. Um, maybe you've gotten emails like this, like how Uber has told me that they stand with the black community, which I also find inspiring. There's so many emails, and almost all of them seem to, in some way or another, want to classify the kind of times we're in. Have you noticed this, that these are confusing times, these are difficult times, or the cliche that I think I saw about a thousand times, in these uncertain times? Um, the one thing that I didn't see, but I actually have been feeling more and more that this is the right way of describing it, I haven't seen anyone say, in these sad times. But they are sad, aren't they? I mean, Nick pointed to this earlier. I think we sometimes have a hard time naming sadness because it's a bit more of a challenging emotion. But just if we just step back and think of all the loss that we have experienced. I mean, there's the 120,000 plus lives that have been lost to coronavirus, which is just a number beyond my imagination. There are the millions of uh, jobs that have been lost, some of which never to be recovered. There's the, 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 the moments that we were expecting to celebrate, whether it's the prom or the graduations or some of the family vacations that were planned or even just getting together with other friends over meals that for months we went without, that's, that's loss and it's sad. And it's been sad as we've been watching the news and seeing these horrible images of, of injustice, of, of violence, of, of rioting, of looting. It, it just feels like our country is breaking apart and it's sad. I find myself, as I'm thinking about the church in this moment, feeling sad. Sad by the realization that it seems like as people are suffering, as people are struggling, they are looking everywhere except the church. And there are understandable reasons for that, right? Um, one of them being that very few churches have been able to meet together for a while. But, but also, I suspect, because the church more and more has been seen as a, a place of hypocrisy. Why would we go there? And, and that grieves me because the church has the gospel. It has, it has the answer for what the world is crying out. It is, it is sad. And I think we don't name it that way because we find sadness threatening. Uh, because sadness, when we're in the middle of it, it can feel like maybe things aren't going to change. It is easy in the midst of sadness to despair. And this is one of the reasons I'm so grateful for the Psalms, because the Psalms give us a way to speak of our grief well, to speak of our grief honestly. There are these communal laments, and not only do they speak of grief honestly, but they speak of grief in a way that moves us to hope. So our, our psalm this morning, a beautiful, one of my favorite psalms in the Psalter, um, a short one, is a psalm that is about communal lament. It's, it's happening at a time, scholars assume that this is probably happening soon after Israel has returned from the exile, which was a very complicated time for God's people. So on one hand, they've come back from exile, which is great. They are back in their home city, and yet now as they are looking around, all they see is wreckage and a shell of what the city used to be. The, the walls are down. 
The temple is in ruins. Their wealth is gone to looting. And, and even if they want to change it, and they do, they want to make it the way it used to be, there is so much resistance, red tape, people surrounding trying to stop them. It feels hopeless, and they are grieving. And it's in this context that we see this song of communal lament that leads people through honest grief into a way forward of hope. And so given the complexity of the time that you and I are in right now, there is some real value in listening to this wisdom. And here's what we see. We see this psalm telling us what to remember, how to pray, and what to do. So first, our psalm invites us to remember that God does what is impossible. So right as our psalm begins, and if you don't have them open, I don't know if you're using Bibles, papers, or phones, whatever it is, I invite you to have it with you because I'll be just like working through this brief passage. And you'll see at the very beginning it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And essentially what it's doing is it's saying, do you remember this? Do you remember this moment? It wasn't that long ago when we were exiles in Babylon, and Babylon seemed impossibly strong. They were never going to be defeated. We were never going to come home, and then one day it seemed like just a moment. The other empire comes and conquers Babylon, and the king of the Persians say, you can go back home, and in a moment we feel like we're marching back to Jerusalem, and then we're at the city. Do you remember that? Now, it doesn't actually talk about the details of what happened. What What it talks about is how it felt. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Have you ever had something happen to you that is so unexpected, so surprising that it feels surreal, like you're not sure it's happening and you just kind of find yourself laughing about it or or even shouting about it? So I was, um, or actually our family has gotten into the show America's Got Talent, AGT for those who are, you know, really in the know. And uh, if you haven't seen it before, it's a talent show where you have people literally from all over the world, don't know why it's called America's Got Talent, it's the world's got talent. You have people from everywhere coming and they're trying to make their big break by coming to this show. And so there's such a desperation for everyone who comes. And if you haven't seen it, the other thing to know is that early on, the big deal, the big deal of a show is the golden buzzer. If someone, if a judge hits the golden buzzer for one of the contestants, that means they have gotten the highest possible honor in that moment. They, they, they kind of go through the next two rounds, and it's not just that, but it's the crowd goes wild, and golden glitter comes down like crazy, and it is big, and, and it's so predictable. Like, it, like there's this kind of lead up the show kind of gets, and you know when you're in the last third of the show, that all you're waiting for is someone with some just sob story, like they've overcome the worst things imaginable to get here. And, and, the, and then after they're done singing, the music starts building, and you know it's about to come. And then one of the judges booms, and the golden glitter comes down. And here's the thing. It gets me every single time. Like, it is so manipulative, and yet, like, the whole time, I'm not looking at the rest of my family. I'm just like, I got some allergies going on right now, but, you know, I'm fine. It's like, there's something about this moment, and I I never fully understood it, that just moves me. And I, I think what it is, though, is in that moment, this person who has received this honor is overcome. 
I mean, they, they fall down on the floor in shock. Their faces are in their hands. They are laughing. They are crying. They are shouting. It's so surreal. They are filled with joy, and it's moving. And, and that's what's being spoken of right here. He's saying, do you remember this? Do you remember what their golden buzzer moment was when we came back and our mouths were filled with laughter? Do you, do you know what that's like? He, he's wanting them to remember because this is what God does. This is who our God is. He does these impossible things to fill us with joy. It's not just here. Th think of, maybe you know how the very story of Israel began. These two elderly people, Abraham and Sarah, gray hair, bodies failing. They're told, you're going to have a kid, which is hard for them to believe. They have been mourning their infertility for decades. And yet then this one morning, Sarah notices it feels like Something's moving inside of her, like a kick she might feel. And then a few months later, and to this elderly couple, a baby is born. And do you know what they name the baby? They name him Laughter. That's what Isaac means. Because they're filled with laughter, they can't believe it. And, and, and we're told, remember this, because this is what God does. Or, or think of when Israel kind of became a nation, they are in Egypt. They are under you know, they are being enslaved to the Egyptian pharaoh. And then when they are being brought out, they finally come to this barrier to the Red Sea. And it's terrifying because you see this massive Egyptian army just charging at you. And you know there's nothing you can do to stop them. And you see this ocean essentially in front of you. And you know there's nothing you can do to go there. And then suddenly, in a moment, suddenly the waters part. And, and they start walking through. And can you imagine the adrenaline rush it must have been to be walking in the middle of the Red Sea like that? And then they get to the other side, and the army that's charging through, I don't know if at first they're like, should we do this? And I guess we got to, and they go through, but the water comes crashing down on them. And do you know what God's people do once this is all finished? It says they sing. Because God has done the impossible and they can't believe it. Their mouths are filled with laughter. This is what God does. We could continue the story, can't we? It's not just in the Old Testament we think of it. Think of, think of the story that defines the Christian church. How the Son of God, the hope of the world, the one who proclaims the gospel is nailed to the cross in the most humiliating and appalling fashion and he's breathing out his last and the disciples are seeing their hopes crumble before them as he dies. And there is no coming back from something like this. Except just a couple of days later on Sunday morning, they see, they see not just a vision of Jesus, not just a recollection of Jesus, but Jesus in the flesh. And it says that Sunday night when the whole group sees Jesus, it says, disbelieving for joy. I mean, I love that phrase. It's such a weird one. Disbelieving for joy. It's the, they can't believe it because they're so overwhelmed by joy because, see, this is what God does. He fills our mouths with laughter by doing the impossible. And it's not just something that we speak of in the past. You know, the Christian gospel, when it is being proclaimed, here is what God is saying through it. He is saying, I know to you your sin. I know your failure. I know your weakness, and I know just how much you've wronged me. And here's what I want you to know. 
I still love you. And I have given my son to die for you. And I have forgiven you. And I have rescued you and made you my own. And I want you to come home. Now, oftentimes we don't recognize just how extraordinary that is. But just occasionally at certain moments, God makes that apparent to us. And our eyes are opened. And if we see that clearly, we will laugh in disbelief. Because this is what our God does. He is the God who does the impossible. And we're told, remember this. Remember, even the nation said he has done great things. Remember how God does the impossible. It is only as we do this. Because if we don't, if we are in the midst of grief, our, our minds will get focused and we will see nothing but hopelessness. But if we remember who our God is, that enables us to look beyond. It enables us to do what the second instruction is. Not only are we supposed to remember that God does impossible things, but we're invited to pray impossible prayers. Do you notice how verse 4, it's just a prayer. It's a simple prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. It's a simple prayer, but if we understand what they're asking for, it is a big prayer. As I said before, their, their city is in ruins, and they are saying, give us our walls back. Give us our temple back. Give us our, our homes back. Enable us again to be the city we once were. Enable us to be a city that is beautiful so that the world might see your greatness through us. Lord, do this. That's a big impossible prayer, really. They have no means of accomplishing that. As I reflect, I think if I were in their situation, my prayers would be much more realistic. You know, Lord, this is really hard. Could you please give us the faith to continue? Give us endurance. Provide for us the means to just keep going. But that's not the prayer they're praying. They're praying for something impossible. And they're doing that because actually God says, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to restore your city. They're doing that because they remember that this is the kind of thing our God does. Our God does what seems impossible. And, and I want to suggest to you that we are called to pray more like that. Yes, there, it is right for us to pray the more realistic prayers. You know, we're told to, to bring our anxieties before God. We're told to pray things like, give us today our daily bread. That's appropriate. But we're also told to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Have you ever thought about just how big those prayers are? We're praying, Lord, we want the whole world to know who you are and to be just filled with admiration. Lord, we long for everyone to know Jesus and to entrust themselves to him. We long for the way the world is, for the government, for the way that, that races relate to each other, for the way that there is injustice dealt with. We want everything to be brought under your rule so that the whole world is beautiful. Your will be done. These are enormous prayers. And yet I would suggest to you that that is what you and I are called to ask God for because he's the God who does impossible things. So um, 
There's a man, Don Carson, who used to teach at Trinity, um, a New Testament writer. And one of my favorite books that he has written, actually, is this very um, gentle book, I suppose you could say, called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, where he just is telling the story of his father. His father, who was a missionary pastor in French-speaking Canada, mostly in the Montreal area. And as Don was growing up, his father, Tom, just didn't have a whole lot of success. He was a faithful pastor. He kept working. But it was a hard slog in Quebec in the time that Don was growing up. He saw very few conversions. And so this pastor just doubted himself, thought that maybe he wasn't doing the right thing or gifted in the right way. But one thing he kept on doing was he kept on praying. And not just small prayers. He did pray big prayers for conversions, for people to come to know Christ, for things to change. And then at one point in the 1970s, something switched on. Carson says, in that decade, there suddenly was this remarkable spiritual hunger so that in less than 10 years, a network of 40 churches expanded to a network of 500 churches. Can you imagine that? And and more than that, here's the part that I was most struck by. Don Carson, who by this point was an adult, said that at one point he was invited to a prayer meeting in the Montreal area. So he came from out of town, and it was at 8 o'clock, and the guy said, these people are really hungry for God's word. So you can preach you can preach long, which is a dangerous thing to tell a preacher. And, and Carson just took advantage of it. He preached an hour and 15 minutes. You think, I go long. Just think about that. And, and you would think that like at 9.20, when they're kind of wrapping up, they would be like, we're done with that. But th- for 40 more minutes, they are asking questions, wanting to know more. And then it's at 10 o'clock, and, and Carson, and then we began praying. And he says at 12.30 in the morning, he left, and he was the first one to leave because people were still urgently praying. And he says, and this was pretty common at the time because God had just done this work of creating this spiritual hunger amongst this community. Now, can you imagine if that happened here in the western suburbs if we started having stories like that around here? Can you imagine that taking place in Hinsdale or Downers Grove? If you can't, I I have a hard time imagining it, but my guess is the same was true of Tom Carson when he was praying, praying these impossible prayers, and yet God did exactly what he prayed for. And, And God did exactly what the people of Jerusalem were praying for. He helped rebuild Jerusalem, not just in that moment, but when Christ came, there was a way where he even more deeply connected them in fellowship. He gave glory to his city. He answered prayers in a remarkable way. And I want to suggest to you that you and I are called to pray for impossible things. What would it look like if, if our church, if the churches in this area started praying for there to be an enormous, deep spiritual hunger in, in the city in the western suburbs? What would happen if we prayed that God would transform his church so that there would be a deep unity in Christ that transcends skin color or bank account size or any other divisions. 
If the Spirit worked in the church in such a way that, that there was an integrity, a holiness, a depth of love that was tangible for all the world to see around, and there were people in every church who are urgently striving to seek to bring good to the world around them, seeking to bring justice, seeking to care for those who are impoverished, what would happen if people noticed the church as something that was beautiful? If we prayed for those things, and we prayed for Christ to be exalted and people to be drawn to him. What would happen if we prayed impossible prayers? It may well be that the answers to that would not happen very quickly. There are times that people have prayed for decades upon decades without any seeming answer to prayer, but I am confident that God calls us to pray these things. And I am confident that God answers prayers like this. And man, wouldn't you love to see prayers like that being answered? We are called, as we remember that God does impossible things, we are called to pray impossible prayers. And it's only as we do that that we get to the third thing. Having prayed impossible prayers, we are also told to pursue, to work towards impossible outcomes. So I mentioned earlier that, that this is a song that is about grief. And we see that perhaps especially clearly in the final two verses of our passage. Um, I should note it even before. There's, there's one illustration that I missed that I think is just key to seeing that. I, I spoke of how they were asking in verse 4 for something impossible there's an image there. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, which means probably nothing to us. Streams in the Negev, that's not much of a metaphor for us until you realize that the Negev is a desert. It's got no life. There are no rivers. There are no streams in the desert. When they are praying for this, they're saying, give us something that's impossible. And, and here's what would happen. Occasionally, once in a blue moon, there would be rainstorms that would happen in the desert, and rain would come down, and suddenly this sand, this lifeless nothing, there would be these rivers of water that would go through the desert, and in a moment, the next day, what seemed completely dead would suddenly spring to life. That's what they're praying for. And, and that's important because I think that actually helps us to understand something about verses 5 and 6. So verses 5 and 6, we see there is this grief, right? It speaks of, of, of sowing in tears. It speaks of going out weeping. There is, there is a depth of sadness. This is not just an ache. This is not just depression. This is, you know, the ugly, sobbing kind of crying. Because God's people have this longing, even though it looks to them like they have nothing but a desert before them. They are longing to see life. They're longing to see the temple return, not just because it was such a great thing, but because they want to draw near to God. They're longing to see walls, not just because they like walls, but because they want a security. They're longing to see the city rebuilt, not just because they want a city, but because the city is the hope of the world. And because it is not there, they are overcome with grief. And I wonder if, if even as they look at their city and they feel like their hope is similar to looking at a desert and wanting life, if when I've talked about what would happen if we prayed these things for the church, if we feel something similar, 
Because there is a sense, isn't there, if we just think about what the church has experienced in the last however long, where the church feels beat up. I'm not even talking about being beat up by some sort of cultural wars. I, I don't actually think that's a helpful category of thinking at times. I'm talking about the way that the church has failed when it has faced temptation. Whether we look back at 100 years and see how many churches failed when it comes to the temptations of racism. Or if we look more recently and we see how many churches fail when they're tempted to elevate this cult of personality rather than focusing on Christ. Or how the church has failed in the midst of political division to stay unified. Or how the church, as it faces temptations of materialism and consumerism, has failed and has focused more on health and wealth than on the cross of Christ and life-giving love. Now, don't get me wrong, there are places in each of those that I mentioned where the Spirit is at work and where God's people have been faithful and have glorified Him. But when we take a step back and see just how the church looks to the world, even to us, it sometimes feels like it's in ruins. It sometimes feels hopeless, which should grieve us. Because when the church is failing, the world suffers. Because the hope for the world is in Christ, and Christ has entrusted the message of him with his church. And so if we just stepped back and looked and thought about this, it would be right for us, like the people of Jerusalem, to grieve. And yet there is this amazing image here if we just hold on to the thing I talked about before, about the, the Negev desert, there's this image here that I think kind of connects with that. I want you to imagine for a moment a group of people who come together and still have tears in their eyes because they're still overcome by the sadness of all that we've been just talking about. And as they gather together, they each pick up a bag of seeds and like a satchel, they, they put it over their shoulder and they walk out quietly together and they walk out into the desert. And as they are continuing to cry, they, they grab seed from their bag and they just start sowing into the Negev. They just start sowing into this barren, lifeless land. It would feel in that moment futile. It would look foolish. And yet, we have a promise in these final verses those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This psalm is an invitation and encouragement to God's people who are feeling completely defeated, saying, take your hammer, take the wood, and let's start rebuilding. Let's start rebuilding even as we are overcome by grief, even as it feels absolutely futile, like throwing seed into a desert. Because we have a promise from a God who can do impossible things, because we have a God who tells us to pray impossible prayers, and he tells us that when we labor seeking him, our labor is not in vain. And I want to ask us this morning, and this might seem like a, a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, what seed 
might God have given you to sow? God very clearly says that each of us are to seek first the kingdom of God. And I suspect oftentimes when we are seeking first the kingdom of God, when we're actually trying to get to work, it feels futile. It feels hopeless because it's seeking something that's enormous. But I su suggest to you that our passage this morning is, is God gently telling you and me it's time to get to work. I know it will feel weak at times. I know it might feel as futile as throwing seeds into desert soil. But I promise you it is not. So let me ask you again, what, what seed has God given you? Maybe some of you um, have been praying at times for neighbors, for friends, for family members. You have been Long for them who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. Maybe you've even been thinking through how to continue to develop a relationship with him and you've been seeking to maybe at times speak to them about Jesus. But maybe recently you've just kind of given up because it just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And I want to suggest to you that God is inviting you to keep sowing that seed even as at times you grieve. Or maybe there are some of you right now who are gripped by a passion because you see something wrong with the world. Maybe it's as racism has come to the forefront or maybe other areas of injustice or ways of, of addressing needs of brokenness, of poverty that matter deeply to you and you want to do something about it but you've never stepped forward because who are you to think you could do anything? Let me suggest to you that maybe that is something God has put upon your heart and he's calling you to sow seeds. Or maybe, maybe in much of your life you have given yourself to seeking to serve the church because you are convinced that the church is where God has his gospel proclaimed to the world and yet, and yet you are tired. And yet it sometimes seems like the church just keeps on letting you down. Let me encourage you, even still, as you are grieving, God is encouraging you to keep sowing your seed. Now, I, I don't want to sound too triumphalistic here. There is no promise that as we keep being faithful that we'll see these immediate, gratifying, amazing results. It may be years of faithfulness before there is reaping. Honestly, it might be not even in our own lifetime. I say that because the very one that we follow more than anyone else, Jesus, think of how his entire life was characterized by sowing. Year after year, he is the sower, sowing the seed, preaching the gospel, and yet when his life comes to an end, when he is on the cross, how many people do he does he have left with him? And yet even he understood exactly what this meant. He himself says in John chapter 12, unless... A seed dies and falls to the ground, it will remain alone. But if a seed dies and goes to the ground, it will bear much fruit. And that is exactly what our Lord Jesus did. He, with his final breath, sowed the seed of his life, dying 
And two, three days later, rising from the dead, he began reaping and reaping and for generations upon generations, reaping fruit with shouts of joy. And I want to suggest to you that I don't know what God will do as we seek to be faithful together, as we seek to pray big prayers together, as we seek to love the world well together. We might not see immediate fruit, but I want to tell you we have a promise. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that because of the resurrection that we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And even as we are weeping, even as it seems like we are sowing seeds into the desert soil where there is no life, we are promised that those who sow weeping will one day reap with shouts of joy. And I want to call you and me to keep sowing that seed. We are in a time of sadness. We are in a time of grief. And Psalm 126 leads us. It tells us, remember who your God is. He is a God who does impossible things, filling our mouth with shouts of joy. Pray impossible prayers to our God. And and pursue impossible outcomes because God promises they will not be in vain. I'd like to invite us to take a moment just in in silence to come before this God who is so generous. And and maybe for some of us that means acknowledging our sins before him where we have not trusted. Maybe it means starting to pray some of these impossible prayers. Or even as God has laid it on our heart, maybe there's something specifically that we should be asking God for help in as we seek to take this step. And in a couple minutes' time, I will lead us in prayer. But let's first spend a couple minutes in silent prayer.